Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Minda Jaramillo, who is the Director of Behavioral Health at the First Choice Community Healthcare Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Minda, welcome. Thank you. Over the course of the last year and a half in particular, you've spent a lot of time working with opioid addicted people, and you've had some great success with your Suboxone program. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'd be happy to. So we applied for a large grant Uh, through the federal government to expand our current Suboxone services. First Choice has been providing Suboxone services uh, and opioid addiction treatment for quite a while. And it was determined because of the epidemic that's going on that it would be great if we could really provide some comprehensive treatment for folks. And so what that means for us and in applying for this grant was it allowed us to hire additional uh, counselors. It allowed us to hire community health workers that work with um, these folks out in the field and do home visits and connect them with resources, as well as looking at where people are and how willing they are to come in and not only hear about the program, but see if it's something that they would be interested in doing. What we do is we developed um, specific guidelines um, based on uh, the needs of the community. And what we have folks do is, you know, word gets around on the street about, you know, who is, um, where folks can get treatment. New Mexico does not have a lot of resources for treatment at this time, unfortunately. Um, I also want to say that in 2014, um, our agency served about 700 patients uh, within our Suboxone program. Wow. Just 2014 alone. Mm -hmm. And so since then, have you seen it trend worse? It has. Worse? Yes. I don't have the numbers with me today, but what I can tell you that we have nine sites. Six of our sites have Suboxone providers, and we have people coming in to get into our Suboxone program every week Hmm. at those sites. So it's growing, unfortunately. But the fortunate thing is people know about it, and they're coming in, and they're willing 
to go through what they need to go through to, to get clean and to get healthy. So what we do is we have folks come in and we have specific patient slots so people don't have to wait a long time to come in um, to hear about the program and to, and to get services. So folks come in, they have to see a counselor first, um, and the reason for that is we want to see how ready are people for treatment because people, what we hear a lot is, yeah, I don't want to use anymore. Um, and it's authentic and genuine, but when it comes right down to it, when people have to think about lifestyle change and withdrawal, they sometimes will back out. So we do some screening tools and see where they are in, in their capacity. So you're doing an intake assessment of them and you want to kind of assess um, their ability is to be successful with your program. Is that fair to That say? is very fair because we do have some folks who come in and they're all gung-ho and they're ready and then they decide that maybe it's not a good time um, because they're very fearful. What I've learned is, uh, you know, people don't want to go through withdrawal. It's They will do anything to not have to go through the agony of opiate withdrawal. So do you have a way to filter out those people that you sense aren't willing to really follow through on this or do you just let it proceed. How's that work? Well, we let it proceed. So mm -hmm. what we do is, let's say, so we use a model called the stages of change. It's a very, it's a popular evidence-based model. And so what this does is it allows people to come in and we treat them at what stage of addiction they're at. So we find people who come in who may be interested. We find people who are ready to go right into treatment. Um, and we don't we don't um, send anybody away. So if we have somebody who comes in and is willing to see a counselor but is not willing to see a provider yet to be prescribed Suboxone, mm -hmm. we continue to work with them and work within their personal barriers. What's holding you back from this? And how can we get you linked into um, feeling safe enough that you're going to proceed with the program? So even if people aren't ready, they come. And um, we have groups that allow people who are currently using to come in and receive support and to help them decide when they want to um, start the program. Um, so they're, they're in the program, but they're in a stage of still thinking about it. But we don't want to send these people away. We want them to, to, con to continue to come. So if you are still using, you can still come. We will support you. We want to work with you until you are ready. Well, so that's, that's unique. Yeah. So that's one component of the population that we serve. And then the other component are, of course, the folks who go through the screening tools um, that we use and the assessment. And they have... Um, and they're ready. Uh, and what we do is we make them an appointment with the prescriber, with the doctor. They go for their induction. And then during um, a week's time, they have to come back to see how they're doing with their dosage, seeing if it's a good dosage or not. And during that time period, they also meet with the therapist to see how they're doing as well. And what are their needs? So we do a needs assessment as far as, you know, what don't you have in your life that would make, um, 
make this treatment a little easier for you. So what barriers are you struggling with? Do you not have transportation to come? Do you not have a home? Do you not have food? Do you, are you linked with um, uh, insurance? Do you have benefits? Can we, what can we do to remove as many barriers as possible that'll make it okay for you to come? So that's what our community health workers do. So they're out in the field all the time, meeting with these folks and supporting them. Okay, so for um, families that are listening to mm -hmm. this, that have a family member that is struggling with opioid addiction, what are the important teaching points that they should know about a program like this when exploring it? So I think the most, one of the most important pieces to know is people who struggle with this addiction are folks who have are folks who want to recover these are folks who are sick of their lifestyle they just want to get better and but there's so many barriers for for them to to struggle through so I think for families to know that it's not just easy you don't just walk up to a treatment center open the door and say hi I'm here there's lots of um, guilt and shame and fear that a person who struggles with addiction feels and they have to come and feel that, it, that it's a safe place. Um, they have to come to a place where they're not going to be judged, where there's not stigma and um, you know once they feel that uh, it's a safe place they're going to be willing to give to you um, what you need to work with them. Um, but there's you know, I talk about barriers a lot because there, there are so many. You have people who, a lot of people who are living on the streets, who have um, trust issues with law enforcement, family members, um, and who don't understand the big picture of addiction and just see it as kind of, um, you know, a moral issue and, you know, question, why can't you just stop? And it's just doesn't happen that way. Yeah. So what makes your facility and the things that you're doing with your Suboxone program unique or different to make it more successful versus any others out there? Well, one of the great things is that First Choice is an integrated env uh, environment. So what we do there is we have uh, behavioral health, we have dental care, and we have medical care. So one of the things that makes it unique is that we also have Hep C clinics. And so we take care of the whole person. You don't, when you come into First Choice, you're not just there um, to work on your addiction. We're also there to help you with your physical health. Uh, and that's huge because we all know that folks who struggle with addiction and mental illness die decades earlier than those of us who don't struggle with that. And a lot of the reason for that is that they physically don't take care of themselves and they develop chronic illnesses. And then sometimes by the time they come to see us, they're in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and sometimes there's not a whole lot we can do. So when people come to our sites, they get a lot of care. So that's one of the things I believe that makes us unique. The other is that we have a more comprehensive program. And by that I mean that if a person relapses, we don't, we don't boot them out. If you relapse, there's reasons why you relapse. And we use relapse as an opportunity, as a teaching moment. So, you know, so, okay, so you relapse. We all know it's part of the addiction cycle. And so we work with uh, those folks who relapse 
and encourage them to come back. So if you're use, if you relapse and you're still using, come back, come and sit in this group. You don't even have to say anything. Just be present and see if you're willing to kind of try this again. And that's what we work with. So we don't, people who relapse, we don't kick them out. We welcome them back. And so many people view relapse as failure. They do. And f- folks who struggle with addiction, um, it's huge because they feel like such a failure. And it, it, and they don't want to try again because they just feel like a failure. And we kind of in society, because there's such a stigma, we perpetuate that. So they don't feel welcome in coming back. So having this open door where they can come back and get help instead of being shunned is huge. Because we know that when people relapse, that there is, I mean, they've been clean and they relapse, that it's something that they truly desire in their lives to want to be clean. And we also know that it, this is something that takes time. This is not something that's a quick fix, and it's not going to be a quick fix. So we have to be able to work with them along their own timelines. It's not about us, the people who provide the treatment. I mean, it is, but it's more so about the people who come in because it's them that we're wanting to help. So when I say it's not about us, it's more about, um, you know, let's not do things the way they used to do them. You know, back in the day, we used to shame and use very hardcore strategies for in working with addiction. Um, and welcoming people with compassion um, and empathy is key because there's this big myth that um, addicts don't want help, and that's just not the case. So they need to feel welcomed, and they need to feel that they're going to be someplace where, where um, there's going to be compassionate people to help them, because that's what they need. Yeah. So the Suboxone program that you run, Suboxone programs in general, um, do have uh, potential for abuse. They do. And so what are the guidelines or guides that you have in place to, you know, hopefully prevent against that? Sure. So one of the things is that we provide a pretty detailed treatment contract that folks have to sign. And so they, they review it with the therapist and then they review it again with the doctor who's going to be prescribing. In the contract is, for example, one of the things is we will not treat anybody who's on benzos. Because, Why is that? because benzodiazepines repress your respiratory system and so do opiates. Hmm. So it's a very dangerous combination. Yeah. But we will work with people to wean them off their benzos if they truly desire to be on Suboxone. Another one is that they're uh, mandated to attend counseling. They have to do that. They have to come in for a certain amount of toxicology screens for their urine um, every month. Um what else is in there? You monitor their Suboxone supply so Absolutely. that they can't sell it. And Absolutely. Whatever. And so the you know if we find out, and we usually find out through these tax screenings, whether people are diverting their Suboxone, because if it doesn't show up in their tax screen, then where is it going? Yeah. Um, but we do, you know, you, you do have some of that. But that also doesn't mean that we're going to kick you out of the program. 
we will give people, you know, several chances if they are diverting. Because a lot of times they may be diverting because or selling it on the street because they have no money. They have nothing. You know, one of the, the things about folks who struggle with addiction is that they're pretty savvy and they know how to work the system. So we have to be smarter. So with some people, you have to figure out whether they're put in a box basically stuck in a corner whereby they've got no choice but to sell out there and, and just so that they can survive somehow. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, certainly. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to be reporting on? What's the type of data that you're tracking and reporting on? They want to know how many uh, new Suboxone patients we are seeing on a quarterly basis. They want to know, are they sustaining in their recovery? If they're following their treatment goals, because everybody who comes in has a treatment goal or two, we want to know how their quality of life has changed. That is huge. Um, What we do know, not having compiled all that data yet or don't have the outcomes yet, but what we do know is that people's lives are changing. We have, I see folks myself in, in um, my own, uh, with my own patients that I see for counseling that have um, gotten off the streets. They have, they're working on mending fences with family members. They're more willing to come to counseling and address underlying issues that have been tormenting them for years and years and years. They are, um, you know, being linked to benefits so they don't have to be on the streets. They don't have to beg for money. Um, getting them on um, some sort of um, disability if they um, meet that criteria. We have people who are just starting jobs, um, part-time jobs, maybe 20 hours a week or 10 hours a week, who have not worked for decades. Wow. Well, that's got to be very rewarding. When, it's it's when very happens. rewarding. I mean, you know, an example is a man that comes to us who's in his mid-60s, has used heroin since his early teens, he has said. And he has been in and out of um, prison. He has been living, once in a while he'll live in a hotel, once in a while he'll live on the streets. But, you know, to make a long story short, he has been clean. He now has um, an apartment. He, we've helped him get some furniture. Um, he comes in for counseling diligently. He's looking for a job um, because he wants to be productive. He wants to give back. And that is what we hear from a lot of people, that they want to be productive. Anything else, Minda, that you'd have to share with our listeners there about the opioid epidemic and in particular, the success that you've had with Suboxone? I would like to see it become non-political. I would like to see people being treated, and I would like to see funding uh, spent on this type of treatment because we know and we see that it changes people's lives, and that's what we're here to do. So, No doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your doing this. You're very welcome. So we've been visiting today with Minda Jaramillo. She is the Director of Behavioral Health. She has 30 years practicing in the field of uh, family health and addiction recovery. And she works in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the First Choice Community Healthcare Facilities. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for joining us for this podcast.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.